Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's very hard for some people, I think, to accept that people are going to die on a lo- quite large scale when you have a pandemic. Hi, and welcome to the Bridge Builders Society pod, the BBS pod, where you meet the exciting people who connect countries, cultures, and businesses around the world. We're recording this in Stockholm. I'm Tina Magnegard Björs. My daytime job is as foreign news reporter at the Swedish news agency TT. I've covered American politics for many years, and I'm also a passionate yogi. And I'm Josephine Charpentier. I'm an entrepreneur in marketing and PR with a soft spot for technology. I'm also the founder of IconFest. Today we're more than proud to introduce you to Fredrik Charpentier Jungqvist. Fredrik is Associate Professor of both History and Physical Geography, and he is an expert in both medieval history and climate history. In recent times, he has also researched surprise pandemics. He has, besides numerous academic articles, written four popular science books with a goal to help us learn from history to better understand present times. Welcome, Frederick. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. So we're very eager to learn more about you and from you, but first we would like you to bring us back to the first time you saw Al Gore's film, An, Unconvenient, An Inconvenient Truth. When and where was this, and what was your reaction? Well, it must have been about 2006, maybe 2007. I think it was 2006. I watched it alone on a cinema, actually, quite soon after it was released in Sweden. And the climate history part and much of the 
climate science in general, I could see right away because I had some interest in climate, especially climate history, that is paleoclimatology already at that time, not professionally, but an interest. And I could see that some of the things were quite biased scientifically in order to get a narrative. It was not fallen the state of the art science, but rather an agenda for climate mitigation and climate action. And I became interested in this because this had a huge impact and especially controversial about that time was the amplitude, the magnitude of natural climate variability across the last few millennia. And people that really stressed the need of climate action T tried often to downplay the amplitude of past climate variability, whereas those not that eager to take um, climate action, so to say, often highlighted past climate variability. And I became really interested in how actually climate had varied and how it had impacted human societies, especially the transition from the so-called medieval warm period to the Little Ice Age especially in Europe and Northern Europe, Scandinavia as a historian, I became more and more interested in this and how climate could have affected society. And, and in order to do research about that, which I do today, almost 15 years later, it was necessary to also learn an entirely new field of science, the science of paleoclimatology. Otherwise, it would be impossible to take into full consideration climate as a factor in human history. So, and you actually uh, started doing all this research and, and uh, it resulted in a book as well, right? Yes, it was a popular science book. So I wrote a popular science book about the time I actually started to do very small studies on my own, more like hobby projects. And I got invited by Nordstedts Verlag, a major publishing house in Sweden to write a popular science book that was published in 2009. This was still why I was a PhD student in history. And I wrote this popular science book that was moderate, uh, relatively successful and came in two editions. And um, after that, I actually started to do actual research together with physical geographers and meteorologists in several countries in Europe and later on also in China and in the United States. And maybe we should say the name of the book also. It was called... Global Nedkylning, Global Cooling, my first popular science book, and it refers to Little Ice Age and or the neoglaciation, the cooling trend of the Earth's climate in the past 5,000 years or so prior to um, uh, recent global warming. But it was mainly referring to the Little Ice Age. And it was, of course, that books they call global warming would have another implication. I really want to stress that this was not the... Uh, political thing or contemporary thing, but more also a little bit provocative on the same time to get it to sell, of course. Mm. Interesting. Well, before we talk more about your research, please tell us more about yourself. Uh, you grew up in Stockholm. Oh, yes. I'm Stockholm born and bred. Okay. When were you always interested in history and geography? At least as... Yeah, since a kid or especially as a teenager, both history and geography, especially maps. But I quite early also became interested in looking on maps over climate zones, vegetation zones and so forth. And about the Arctic and sea ice and so forth and study atlases. But history was a major interest, at least since high school. Okay, interesting. Uh, so this fascination with the past and with our world uh, became your professional life. Please give us 
the elevator pitch on your research on both topics? Well, I conducted research in quite quite a number of different fields in history, mainly pre-modern history. My doctoral dissertation is actually in legal history uh, or constitutional history. But that's uh, basically a field I have left, more or less, although I supervise a PhD student now as co-supervised that do legal history. But otherwise, I'm doing mainly research nowadays in either climate history or agriculture, agrarian history. And my big research project is about the reasons for famines and food shortages in early modern Europe, that is from about 1500 to 1800, and their consequences. And the role of climate versus the role of human factors, societal factors, for the occurrence and severity of famines. And this research will go on about at least five years more. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. So the, in this sense, you're actually a bridge builder. Uh, it's not common to be a scholar in both humanist and natural scientific subjects, is it? No, it's very rare, or extremely rare. Do you feel uh, the benefit of each other? Yes, both yes and no, but the academic systems in the subjects and the publication culture and the way you collaborate with other scientists is very different. So sometimes it's not clashes, but uh, you have to handle the very different traditions, but mainly it's a benefit. I don't think it's actually that rare to have an expertise in two subjects. I mean, many historians, for example, are very good in many different ancient languages and modern languages. and. Uh, I'm not good on that, but I'm good in geography and methods in geography and to a certain extent in statistics. So I think most have within the humanities, languages, religion, literature and so forth. Whereas these skills that is more common also in parts of the social sciences have become quite rare in history. It used actually to be more common with statistic skills, for example, in history. But you have moved the subject, at least partly, more towards the pure humanities away from the social sciences. And, con and, and I think uh, you also see wide range of overlapping fields today and more interdisciplinarity, but especially actually in archaeology, a sister, sister discipline of history, it's much more a bridge between the natural sciences and technology and methods and the humanities. So, okay, for a historian it's rare, but it's not especially if I would be an archaeologist instead. Mm. So, uh, briefly about your life in the world of academics, what do you actually do as an associate professor? Of course, teaching on all different levels. I also do, of course, research much in the evenings and weekends because and lots of administration and budget work and getting research funding for collaborators and yeah, teaching administration, course administration, and also a lot of public outreach activities. I deliberately focus quite much on that. It's therefore I've written four popular science books in Swedish. Most of my research is published in English in specialized journals for other academics, but I'm also doing a lot of popular science talks uh, in different, and um, sometimes radio programs, uh, talks, a lot of other things. So I'm trying to inter interact with the general public also, but to have time for all this, it's, I mean, basically full schedule, and it's not a 40-hour working week. That would be impossible to get it all in, but it's 
I get the kind of flu on it. And research, you can't really figure how much time it will take. It's uh, sometimes you get a jackpot with a really successful project, and sometimes you just get stuck, and it takes years, or you don't get anything out. And sleep is overrated anyway, right? No, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really important for me to sleep. I need at least seven and a half hours, preferably over eight hours every night. So I'm really prioritize my sleep. That is something I do. So you've chosen some very serious and extremely relevant topics to study, the climate, uh, history and food insecurity. And recently you've been in the news because of your assessment of excess mortality in the coronavirus pandemic, something that actually changed the image of Sweden a bit. Tell us about this. Well, I just compiled really the official statistics uh, I wrote a popular science book that was published in November about the corona pandemic in the light of historic pandemics, uh, both in the far past and in the more recent times in the 20th century, and the reaction to it from various angles. And just to keep myself updated, I compiled uh, the data of excess mortality in the European economic area, in Switzerland, the United Kingdom. and. Excess mortality is the percentage above the mean mortality for 2016 to 2019, the deviation. So it's, it's the percentage higher or in the case of Norway, that's the only country with not an excess mortality. And Sweden was, in a European perspective, had a very low excess mortality, but higher, as we know, than the other Nordic countries. And even this data was for 2020. If you go into 2021, more and more countries get a higher and higher excess mortality the longer the pandemic goes. So some countries were very lightly hit in the first um, wave, so to say, the first season of the coronaviruses in the spring 2020. But uh, less and less countries have uh, uh, withstand devastating excess mortality the longer the pandemic has been going, especially in integrated areas like Europe. I mean, I small islands that are not closely integrated, they can fare also in historic pandemics pretty well sometimes. But integrated areas sooner or later typically get to quite similar uh, effect of pandemic. It always differs. It's uh, some randomness in this, but also how the society looks like, the demographics, uh, the social conditions, the level of connectivity with other areas and so forth, and also the measures taken. But uh, it's almost impossible in an integrated area uh, to, uh, to fare very well when you have a pandemic. Mm. And especially in May and June, and also, of course, in April, Sweden was very badly hit compared to most of the rest of Northeastern Europe. North e in a Northeastern European perspective, it, was sta it stood out, together with the United Kingdom in the Northwest. And uh, in this, then you had the uh, lower than average mortality during the summer. And actually, in October, Sweden was the only country in Europe with no excess mortality. Then things, of course, changed in November again. But what also happened was that most other countries between October and now in February was hit in Europe much harder than Sweden in the second wave. Those countries that fared 
very well or didn't have any excess mortality in the first wave have now in general in East Central Europe become the most hard hit countries. And this also follows a kind of general historic pattern that if you fare well in the first wave, you typically fare less well in the second wave. It's a very common pattern and one of the reasons of course is a lowered immunity to the disease in these areas that never have had it. But it's also a range of other factors. And just fast before we continue, why would you say that excess mortality is a better um, way of looking at how a pandemic hits than for say just the death rate or the number of infected people? Because the number of infected people depends on the testing and you have very different testing strategies and testing capacities both over time and between countries and within countries. So that's quite obvious if you look at the data that they don't really are comparable across Europe and the death rate also differs, death with or in COVID-19 differs between different parts of Europe or countries. How, where of course the testing of those that are deceased, how many you actually capture of those that have died of the virus or if how you diagnose the death. Do you need to prove that COVID-19 had been a major cause of the death or that you just had the virus and this will give slightly different numbers. I mean excess mortality and the actual official numbers of death in COVID-19 across Europe they correlate very very highly but it's clear that especially some countries in East Central Europe and to a lesser extent in some other countries underreport the number of deaths compared to for example in Nordic countries, Germany and the Czech Republic and Belgium. Mm -hmm. And when you study excess mortality, uh, are there any historic patterns you can see? Can you compare uh, what you've learned now, for example, with the Hong Kong flu of 1968? This flow, or the, the Asian flow in 1957, there were also quite severe diseases for the old people. And in Sweden, more or less, you had the same excess mortality rate of those over 65 with COVID-19 2020 is quite comparable. And also the severe flu season 1976. The difference here is both that we have a much larger proportion of the population that are older and we are very unused to mass mortality. But another thing is also that these pandemics or severe epidemics, they were more spatially heterogeneous. They were not across the entire Europe. Some regions fared very badly of these influenzas and some regions were almost entirely spared. COVID-19 has spread across the globe and across Europe much more homogeneously. Uh, and so it seems to be more easily spread and therefore more dangerous because it has the potential to infect many more people. But one pattern I did find that it's a tendency that Sweden and Denmark is hit worse than Norway, Iceland and Finland in this type of diseases. It's not a huge difference and not true for every instance. But it's a slight tendency that uh, Sweden and Denmark is much more worse hit. And it's probably because these regions are more integrated to the European continent also in the past and has larger population centers. So it's geographical factors to a large extent, societal factors that uh, shows this and I think in COVID-19 the first wave it's very important to remember that Stockholm was very hard hit. The rest of Sweden with some exceptions were not that hard hit. 
let's also touch a bit upon, I mean, this is something that you've researched pretty recently, but your, your big topic of research is food insecurity in the medieval, medieval ages. Uh, or early modern. Early modern ages, sorry. Um, please talk a little bit about this and the connections you see to today. I'm interested to see the reasons or the combination of risk factors that could cause severe food insecurity or even famine mortality in pre-modern times across very different types of societies in Europe and look both in market integrated societies and very rural poorly integrated societies those that have rich farmers that own their own lands those that were dominated by tenant farmers and a reign in times of war and in time of peace in connection with climate, because the direct cause of um, most harvest failures or famines was harvest failures several years, consecutive years after each other's, that were typically caused by cold and late springs and rainy mid to late summers. They could also be droughts, but they typically didn't last for several years. So in the climax of a little ice age with colder and shorter growing seasons, you have a more common harvest failures in, in Europe, north of the Mediterranean. Uh, so it seems to be a climate trigger or extreme weather trigger, if you want, certain weather types that could be devastating, both for domestic animals and for grain crops, uh, were more common during certain climate regimes. It's a clear climate connection. But some regions didn't suffer famines or very light famines, despite very poor climate or weather conditions. So it's just one trigger or one factor in a web of other factors. And in the project I'm leading, it's a larger European project with about 10 scholars involved from different disciplines. We are trying to look at the combination of risk factors. And actually, first, how the climate affected harvests and how the productivity changed, how it changed the grain prices in the cities and how the market between especially cities functioned, because the cities at least, was, uh, they needed trade to get food. On the countryside, even more self-subsistence, but on the cities you needed trade. And how the market functioned in times of crisis especially, and how the market became more secure in general over time, and when and where this happened. And then finally, to try to figure out the combination of risk factors for a famine to occur and the threshold of food reduction in different areas for famines to occur. And I think some of the lessons that can be learned is applicable with some caution, of course, for example, to the poorest part of Africa today. It's a very different society, so you can't really translate the past in Europe, say, to, to sub-Saharan Africa today, but you still can disentangle the relative role of climate and environment versus the role of socio-political and socio-economic factors. And um, I think you can learn things, and it's still a debate about the role of, of global warming, climate change, environmental factors, for example, for harvest failures or even famine, say, in the Horn of Africa versus uh, uh, political factors like civil war and political instability and inequality. And he, uh, this has been going on for a long time, this discussion, and I think to phrase the questions after the contemporary debate in a historic context can at least give us 
a test bed, a lot of cases to study in the past. And the end of the project, the goal is to connect our lessons from the past to the contemporary debate and discussion. So the current state of international climate action, do you think it's enough? Not to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases, mainly carbon dioxide from the emission of fo uh, burning fossil fuels. You focus also on a lot of other things than fossil fuels uh, that are very minor contributors uh, to, clim uh, to global warming. That I mean, the only really important thing, if you want to, uh, I don't think you can stop global warming, to be honest, but to decrease the rate and magnitude of global warming in the 21st century is to reduce actually the burning of fossil fuels considerably and of a lot of economic and societal reasons it's like unlikely to happen on a very large scale on a global scale it might very well happen in Europe to a large extent and eventually in other places but this is a slow process because it's so much larger short to medium term in interest there so i'm quite pessimistic how successful you will be but no you don't you're not doing enough and i'm not always sure you're doing always the right things because some things are easier but less important to do things about and in the core problem is the burning of fossil fuels and uh, this as we have seen is really difficult to decrease on a large global scale, unfortunately. So what is your recipe? I actually don't have a recipe here. I can notice that this is the case, and it's not surprising that this is, is the case because it's so much econo economics involved and also, s to a large extent, lack of good substitutes that are cheap and easy to handle. So. As long as fossil fuels are pretty cheap and easy to come by, it's a really big interest actually to use them. So I'm quite pessimistic there, but I think as a researcher, as a scientist, a scholar, you can help in the debate to really point out what is the state of the art of the science, how is the misconceptions of some things, you can point that out and you can also given firm knowledge bases for policymakers, but I am not sure if you should and can do very much more than that. Parallels between the climate crisis and the COVID pandemic, uh, do you think, or do you have anything to tell us about that, your thoughts? I don't see any parallels there really, actually. Uh, not that I can come to think about. They are two operating on different timescales, of course. They have very different uh, impacts on society and the pandemic itself have very little direct impact on the, on the natural environment, uh, whereas um, it has a huge direct impact on human society. So I would say actually human action or how you handle the pandemic have a huge impact on society, maybe more than the pandemic itself. And this is really interesting when in my research about famines and historical famines and how you handle food insecurity because how you address in society a crisis of some kind is often more important for the outcome than actually uh, 
how severe the food shortage itself is, how you handle it. And I think uh, most of the long-term consequences you may get to the corona pandemic is decisions that to a certain extent are done in panic and not, uh, not without a proper cost-benefit analysis. And um, you can see it quite clearly that many of the actions taken are not really well funded in science and they are not very efficient either but have severe drawbacks in different parts of society not very much in sweden or the other nordic countries to that extent but in some parts of the world and especially in the poorer parts of the world which uh, many say in the countries that have a very young population very few old people and uh, you still have had severe lockdown restrictions that have a devastating effect on the economy in the in in a country where people are to a large extent under the poverty level you drive people into poverty or even a risk of famine without winning much ben health benefits yeah hmm. so now we're approaching the the bridge builder question which is the grand theme of this podcast uh, you we're actually, you've actually touched upon this subject already, but your bridges go between between academic research, but they also go from the past to the present, and from the academic world to maybe the policy world or to the general public. Mm. Yes. So, in, in in from your perspective, what do you carry over the bridges? It's both disconnection between geography or the physical world, climate, for example, but also other aspects of of geographical space together with changes over time, past to the present in various ways. And also what lessons we can learn from the past. M very often actually historians today are quite hesitant to address contemporary issues with lessons from history. It's a sensitive thing within the field and it's often people with outside the discipline of history that do it for historians, so to say, and I dare to a certain extent to do it, but problemize what you can learn from history. And then trying also to bring recent and hopefully, I say hopefully sound science or sound, sound scholarship to general public as much as I can. And this is a difficult thing to do because the state of the art in research is often, both in climate but even more when it comes to COVID-19, very, very uncertain and it's a lot of contradictions. So sometimes, of course, it's unavoidable that you give the general public something that may be proven partly wrong a few years later. But that's the way also science works. And I'm also trying to communicate the uncertainty in an easy way, which I think is the biggest challenge when it comes to the communication to the general public and even to policymakers. So briefly, is there anything in particular that you're very curious about now that you want to research for the future? It's my ongoing research, actually, how the grain market, the most important foodstuff in early modern Europe, how the grain market integration and sometimes disintegration between about 1500 to 1800, actually how it worked. It's a project, I'm part of the project I'm working on now, two articles together with a German colleague, and we are really interested to see the results here because there have been some earlier studies on a smaller scale done on this, but this is done with new methods and much larger data set of historic prices, and they might tell us a lot 
how different parts of Europe actually developed from this integration of the grain market, how well the market functioned and what it can tell us about the society. So what, uh, what is your take on technology then? Is there any innovation you wish for that could improve your life? <laughs> I haven't really thought about that and I couldn't give an answer, I think. But okay. one thing I couldn't do without in my research or in my communication or even in my contacts with my friends around Europe, for example, is internet. Without internet, most of my research would be impossible. And uh, also the collaborations would basically be impossible without or extremely slow to impossible without internet. And how to share data and how to share scientific results, etc. It's a revolution in science and most of my research will simply not today be possible without internet. So this is, from my point of view, maybe the most important uh, innovation. But that's a really great take in on technology. Yeah. About it's not new anymore, but without it, most of what I'm doing would not be feasible. No, no, exactly. And what inspires you? To find new knowledge and to also learn things myself, things that I'm interested in and trying to, um, it's like a detective story, how to find, uh, the not the solution, but to find the answer on things that is intriguing for me. And when it comes to teaching or lecturing, it is to deliver the most important take home messages and summarize a vast field of knowledge in a quite an easy way or hopefully easy way without simplifying it too much. I take up that as a challenge both in teaching, popular science writing and popular science talks. So say uh, 40, 50 years from now when you sit in front of the fireplace, uh, what stories from this time of your life do you think you're going to tell the friends who are there with you? I think I would tell that this is a transition period in my life from a more to a more stable academic position from partly struggling, partly struggling, extreme work in order to come to a secure academic position that has been a transition to a kind of not more easygoing but more stable and less stressful phase of my life. But Apart from that, I think it will be the COVID-19 pandemic and the societal reaction to it and also how science have been used and misused and misinterpreted and all the, the high level also of aggression to scientists during this pandemic. And uh, I think the sci science typically needs to take its time. And during the pandemic, you have wanted to have answers directly and it even been as you know threats to scientists and this has been very emotional this pandemic for many people i think it's quite unique in history at least in history recent history that you have had this um, reaction this very strong reaction also emotionally emotionally to a pandemic it's very hard for some people i think to accept that people are going to die on a lo quite large scale when you have a pandemic. And 
everyone trying to look at is someone else's fault. I see the same in other countries that have fallen, especially in the UK. That's always need to point out that it's someone's fault, and if you had done this or that, you would have avoided that. And it's actually in most cases quite unlikely that the outcome would have been that much different with these different choices. And you have this kind of as a laboratory of different countries that have done different measures. And in some cases, either due to coming in the right timing or due to some geographical or societal factors or that you have chosen the right measures in the right time, you have been successful. But in general, you have been, so to say, I wouldn't say unsuccessful because you have flattened the curve so that the health system in most countries have not been overwhelmed, but you still have, I mean, the disease is still going through the population. And this has been very, this has been pointed out, of course, by most scientists, especially in medicine, that this will happen with this type of virus, um, that this is more or less unavoidable. But, well, people have often not accepted that, and you must come up with some fantastic solution that you can come out of this um, uh, situation and the expectation of a vaccine have often been more or less unrealistic in this aspect both how fast you developed it actually developed it much faster than almost all scientists in this field of developing vaccines thought was possible but also to product produce and distribute them that takes time you are used nowadays to be able to stop most diseases, or at least this, that some people would say simple disease, a respiratory disease, when you can treat successfully so many more, so to say, advanced diseases, that this can be such a threat, especially to our older population. So it's uh, a special time, I would say, yes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. leave it with that. Uh, that's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for Frederick yes, for thank sharing you, Frederick. your knowledge and insights and uh, thank you all for listening to the Bridge Builders Society pod. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>